love to add my welcome to each and every one of you for being with us here and online, and it's a joy for us to get to share together. I want to begin by actually showing you an image. This is kind of a real-time something that's happening in the life of the church, and I understand that it's really small, but they needed the wide-angle lens to get this in. This weekend, as cold as you may be going out and being here at church, this weekend we have 250 students, so 6th graders through 12th graders, and 50 adult volunteers who are leading winter retreat this weekend. Can we celebrate that? And I think it's only appropriate that we pray for and intercede what the Spirit is doing in the lives of these students. So let's begin by praying together. Heavenly and gracious Father, we thank you so much that you are willing to intrude in our lives and in remarkable ways to remind us of your goodness. And you show up at different stages of our life, but we know that particularly when we're young, when we've not become jaded and cynical, that our hearts are open to you. And so we pray right now this weekend, as the gospel is proclaimed, as students experience what it means to be in loving community, that you would give a holy imagination to those students and that they would come to know you and to love you and to serve you in a whole new way. And so we thank you, God, for the leaders who are there and for an opportunity for them to be able to get a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ and all of God's people said together. So as Chuck reminded you earlier, we're in the midst of a year-long series where we're talking about that great image that the choir just sang about and that heart of the most beloved prayer that we have in the Bible, Psalm 23, that one line, my cup overflows, and that you and I can truly be filled with the very stuff of heaven and that the goodness and the mercy or the goodness and the love of God can be the very things that just fills the container of our life. And so this is what we've talked about as being our prayer for this year. But there is a problem in what we talked about last week with the prophet Jeremiah. Why does our cup not overflow? Well, according to the prophets, it's because the containers of our lives, the cisterns of our lives are cracked. That we chase after worthless things and we end up becoming worthless ourselves. And because we're fragmented and broken, God pours into us, but we leak. And so this week, as we're kind of laying the groundwork for what we're doing this year, we're going to talk about the promise of the gospel and what did Jesus uniquely promise us in terms of living water. Now, let me point ahead to what is to come. So what we're doing is each month, this is kind of an introduction month, each month we're going to be looking at the way of Jesus or the practices of of Jesus. We're going to talk about prayer and Sabbath, secrecy and confession. I know you're intrigued by that one. Solitude and silence, listening and discernment, simplicity and fasting, the study of God's word, worship and celebration, service and generosity, and what does it mean to put it all together for a life with Jesus? What we talked about at the beginning was that we vastly overestimate what we can do in a day. I don't know about you, but I get to the end of my day, and I look at my to-do list, and I'm like, I didn't get near as much done as I thought I could do. But we vastly underestimate what we can accomplish in a year. If you are willing to set aside this year to be in community 
and to go with us on this journey, I know that you'll be surprised by how much your life can overflow with the goodness and the mercy of God. And one of the ways that scripture talks about that in the promise of the gospel and the good news is with this phrase, living water. And so I want to introduce us to that today. And to do that, I need to start with a story. This is a picture of the Wind River Mountain Range. It's in the Rockies. It's in Wyoming. It's located next to the Shoshone National Forest. My uncle on my mom's side of the family, taught for over 30 years for this organization called the National Outdoor Leadership School. It's a mountaineering school. And as a belated high school graduation gift, he gave me a 10-day backpacking trip in the mountains. Now, I was going backpacking, but I didn't know anything about the outdoors. And so he's having to coach me up and to train me up along the way. We were getting ready to go for a long hike. We were breaking camp, and this was towards the beginning of our time when he said, hey, you're going to need to fill up all of your canteens, your water bottles, because we're going to go for a long hike. Well, I had filled them up at the faucets when I left, and now I was going to have to fill them up in the wilderness. And so I walked over to one little stagnant pond that's just sitting there and started to fill up my water bottle. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? And I said, I'm filling up my water bottle, just like he told me. He's like, you're going to make yourself sick, and then that's going to be my problem. Why don't you get some clean water? And he began to show me that if you get closer to the source, if you get to a higher altitude, if the water is moving, and if there's a lot of volume of that water, that that's better than going to a little stagnant pond. And he taught me a phrase that I'll never forget. He said, running water is cleaner water. Fast forward several years, I'm leading a group of people from this church in Israel. And we're in the Holy Land, and we are in this location that's known as the Judean Desert. This is the very desert in which King David was running and hiding from Saul, who was trying to murder him. This is the same desert that Jesus was likely wandering in during the time of the temptations. It's desolate, it's arid, and yet in the middle of it is this spring in this one location. This is known as the Spring of En Gedi. And this is the exact location. There's some times where we know this is exactly where this happened in the Bible. This is the exact location where King David was hiding from Saul who was trying to kill him. And regardless of what's going on in the weather patterns or how much rain there's been, this spring always flows. And so we're standing there with our guide and we're learning about the story of King David and times in the wilderness and we're learning about the value of water. And he said, you know that phrase living water? And we all go, yeah, we've heard that term living water from the Bible. He goes, living water does not mean spiritual water. It's not a spiritual phrase. Living water is an ancient term for water that's on the move. And so when Jesus was making promises about you and me having access to living water, he wasn't coining a spiritual phrase. This is a phrase that they would have used all the time where they're getting closer to the source, and that this is water that's on the move. Today, looking at two scenes from the life of Jesus, I want to do two things. I want to help you to find this living water, and then I want to help you to become this living water. 
In the first scene of what we look at biblically of finding living water, it's a famous story of what happens in what is considered to be traitorous territory. It's known as Samaria, and the Samaritans were people who had wandered away from the way of God. And so you weren't even allowed technically to walk through Samaria, and yet Jesus walked straight through it. And as they're on the middle of their hike and their march on their way, Jesus is tired, and he's leaning up against a well, and it's at high noon. And there is a woman who approaches the well at high noon to draw water. She draws water because she doesn't want to be seen by the other people who would come in the morning and come in the evening. And Jesus is laying back against the well. His eyes are closed. He's tired. The disciples have gone into the village to get some food she approaches she's surprised to see him there she's surprised to see him there and he says will you give me a drink now as this is a rabbi who is talking to a woman that was taboo as here is a jew who's talking to a samaritan that is taboo And by the way, just as an aside, if some of you aren't conditioned, we're putting sermon outlines in the bulletin. So for some of you who are trying to furiously capture this down, there is an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. But what I don't want you to miss in this story where we're about to see her experience the living water of God, it is this, is that it requires vulnerability. Now, what's interesting, I don't mean the vulnerability of us. The gospel always begins with the vulnerability of God. God comes to us in a human. And he makes himself hungry and thirsty for the purpose of being able to be near to us, to be close to us, to be accessible to us. And he asks us, Will you? God in Jesus Christ makes himself vulnerable. And he does so so that he can pursue you. Don't miss the vulnerability of Jesus in this moment. This woman's not so sure about this guy. And in doing so, she kind of objects a little bit to the whole social situation of you shouldn't even be talking to me anyway. And Jesus leans into that and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is asking you. The second thing that we discover in the story of finding living water is that it takes incompetence. And what I mean by that is that you and I need to come to terms with of knowing what we don't know. One of the greatest impediments to the gospel for a congregation that is well-educated like ours is that we would rather pretend to know what we don't know so that we don't perceive incompetent. And because of that, we're not willing to grow. True story from one of my previous churches. Um, We were walking through John Ortberg's book in a small group guy's Bible study that I was leading that was called The Life You Always Wanted. And it had a very pretty dust-covered jacket on the book. And when one of the guys showed up for the meeting, he had taken the dust cover off of it and walked in with what was a very kind of vanilla-colored book so that you couldn't see what the title was. And I said, did you lose your dust jacket? Like, how did you lose that? And he goes, no, I took it off. I ride the train, and I didn't want people to see the title. 
And I said, why didn't you want somebody to see the title? And he said, well, if people saw me reading a book that said the life you've always wanted, they would presume I don't have the life that I've always wanted. (laughs) Wow. But we can work with that. The first step in actually finding the living water of God is to admit your incompetence. You don't know how to pray. You don't know how to rest. I don't know how, how am I supposed, when am I supposed to confess something? When am I supposed to keep it to myself? I don't know how to read the Bible intelligibly and faithfully. Everybody is a beginner in prayer. But if you and I at the beginning of this year are going to pretend like we know what we're doing, we're in real trouble. And we won't go very far. The third aspect of this story in finding living water is that Jesus says you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus said in another place, you do not have because you do not what? Ask. One of the primary reasons that we do not grow in our life with God is our unwillingness to ask God questions that we don't know the answer to. And so we're not really open and receptive. In fact, we use our spiritual practices, our going to church, our prayer time, these kinds of things, not as being open and receptive, but as ways of trying to manage the divine or to control God as a part of our lives or manipulate God as opposed to surrendering our lives to God. And then the very next thing in the story of finding living water Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Have you ever heard the phrase that money can't buy happiness? Of course you have. It's not actually true. We have the social science to know that money can actually make you happy. But here's the catch. It just doesn't make you happy for very long. When you buy something you want, you will become happier. The problem is the happiness and the satisfaction that come from that dissipate rather quickly. And so what Jesus is saying here is there is a way to draw off of a source where you can get off of the treadmill of trying to satisfy yourself and that there is a way to be fulfilled eternally. But that only comes from what he offers. And then the last little part of this finding of living water, I love this part of the story. I'm going to teach you a new word with this. Indeed, the water I give them will become in there a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I want to teach you a Greek word today. The word is holomai. Say holomai with me. It is that word for bubbling up or welling up. And it only occurs in two other scenes in the New Testament. Let's look at him. The first scene comes from Acts chapter 3. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Christ Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And he jumped, what's that word? To his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping, which is? 
and praising God. Now fast forwarding into Acts chapter 14. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. And at that the man jumped up, which is and began to walk. What we see over and over again with this term is that we are imprisoned ever since we were born and that we cannot move and yet that there is this opportunity, there is this encounter, there is this invitation, there is this discovery that we can have that indeed the water that Jesus will give to us will become in us a spring of water that is leaping, that is dancing with joy into eternal life and that that is the invitation of the gospel for Presbyterians who don't like to move. It requires the movement of the spirit of the living God. That that is what is at work. That when we realize that God is vulnerable and coming to us. And that no, we don't know what we ought to know. And that we are willing to be open and to receptive to what God might be doing in this Jesus Christ. And that we're willing to ask. And that we recognize that there is only one thing that will truly satisfy us. And that what he will give us will become a spring that is welling up, dancing up, leaping up. That is what it means to find the living water. And that's where most sermons end. That's where most of the story ends in American Christianity, particularly for the last hundred years. That I stop here and I give you the invitation to find that living water. And that's good, but it's not the whole story. Because the invitation of what we have is not just to find the living water in Jesus Christ. We have to move the goalposts further down. It's not just about finding that living water. It's that you and I actually get to become the living water of our loving God. And we're going to see that through the second scene, which is John chapter 7, where it's like this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Let's break this down a little bit. On the last and greatest day of the festival. What festival is being talked about here is the festival of Sukkot. It is the festival of the tents. It is the festival of the tabernacles. This is the festival of when God's people, one of the pilgrimage festivals, of when they were wandering in the wilderness. If you were in a desert, arid place, what's your primary concern? Water. And God provides for them miraculously in their desolation. God led them through an entire generation through that. And that is what they are recounting year after year, celebrating. It also takes place in the fall when they are praying that the rains may come so as they are in the promised lands that their crops may go. And the ritual of remembering the faithfulness of God is that 
on seven days of the festival in a row. They go down, which is at the southern part of the lowest part of the old city of David. They go into the pool of Siloam and they get a pitcher of water and they march joyfully to the streets. They go up to the temple and they pour out the water as a water libation, a water sacrifice to God. Every day, six days, water up to the hill, up to the top, pour it out on the altar, water over and over again. But they don't do that on the last day. They don't pour out the water on the last day of the festival. But on the last day of the festival, Jesus did this. He stood and he said in a loud voice. Now, it's not often that I take issue with the translation of the NIV. Our English translations are so good. There is a term in Greek for voice, and they put mega in front of it, mega voice, loud voice. This is not what happens here. This is not Jesus raising his voice. This is Jesus crying out. And it's a very specific term, and I wrote down just a couple of these to make sure I got these just right. Um, There is the woman who cries out because her daughter is dying. There is the blind man who's crying out that Jesus might heal him. There are the disciples in the storm that are crying out to Jesus because they're afraid. There are demons who are crying out because Jesus um, is confronting them with the power of God. They cry out in the streets when they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They cry out as the crowds when they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And on a couple of occasions, Jesus cries out. Jesus cries out at the tomb of Lazarus when he says, Lazarus, come out. Jesus cries out when he's confronting the leadership in the temple. Jesus cries out when he is on the cross and he gives up his spirit. And the only other occasion that Jesus cries out is here. He cries out. And he says, anyone. Are you anyone? Sure you are. Thirsty. Are you thirsty? Sure you are. Will you come to Jesus? Will you drink deeply of what he has? Will you trust in him? It will always be consistent with what scripture teaches. It will never be inconsistent to scripture. And if you are willing to do these things and begin the process of apprenticeship to him, here's what happens. Rivers of living water can flow from you. Jesus didn't pull this out of thin air. The promise of the prophets was this, that on that day, in the time of the Messiah, living water will flow from Jerusalem. And in this promise, Jesus fulfills it and completes it. And to say, it will not only flow from Jerusalem, but it will flow from Atlanta and Shanghai and Dublin. Because it will flow from us. The church. I don't want you to miss this. 
Yes, I want you to find the living water. But the point of this year is not just to find it. It's to become a water that moves. That's the invitation of this year. We've brought some partnerships to help us with this invitation, and I would love for you to give a Peachtree welcome to John Mark Comer as he joins me up here. So John Mark is our Pence Speaker Series. He's going to be with us tonight. We'll be right here in this room since they've gotten the heater working. And um, we'll be here for, to hear from John. I'm going to be interviewing John um, about his most recent book, which we have available that we've purchased for you called Practicing the Way. And we'll talk more about that tonight. But, but John, I'd love for um, you to introduce yourself to the congregation and, and tell us how, how did you find the living water of God in your own life? Yeah, good morning, everyone. Look at that. You're Presbyterian, and you say good morning. Yes. Well done. I feel a little underdressed this morning, but I'm very happy to be here. I'm John Mark Comer. I'm from Los Angeles. Just recently moved there after about 20 years in the Pacific Northwest of church planting and pastoring a church called Bridgetown Church, and now I lead an organization also called Practicing the Way that's all about this, about... How do we help uh, busy people in the digital age slow down their life by adopting practices from the way and the life of Jesus that are all over the life of Jesus in the four biographies in order to really begin to, in the language of this morning, drink deeply mm -hmm. and, and let it flow from you? And, um, you know, that's a bit of an ambiguous question, so I don't know if I'm in the right ballpark here, but it's a beautiful question. Um, you know, I grew up in the church, and uh, which is a real gift. My parents kind of came to faith in the Jesus movement in California and were, in the language of their kind of world, radically saved. It's not enough to get saved. Presbyterians get saved. They were radically <laughs> saved, you know. And I grew up in this Jesus-loving and Jesus-following home, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But growing up inside the kind of um, milieu of evangelicalism and the Western Protestant stream of the church and a high emphasis on the Bible and in church on Sunday, um, it was really helpful for me until I reached a certain level of spiritual maturity, yeah. um, and which turns out was not even very far into the spiritual journey. And then it's like I just kind of hit this plateau. You know, Ruth Haley Barton that I believe is on your podcast or will be soon. I was listening to her a while ago, and she was kind of telling her autobiography of growing up in a similar vein of the church. And she said, I had come to the end of what the typical evangelical discipleship model had to offer. And I remember exactly what that felt like in my story. And the kind of formula for life with God that I had grown up with, which was basically go to church on Sunday, read and study and learn more of the Bible through a morning quiet time and reading books and such and tithe, all good things that are still very much in what I would call my rule of life, the way I follow Jesus in community. They were really helpful, but they did not touch. Once my discipleship to Jesus and my ache for God began to go beyond the kind of 
introductory levels of maturity to the, you know, in psychology language, from above the line to below the line. Below the line is all the stuff that we want to just deny and ignore and run away from and not face and not own. It's the shadow. It just was not helpful. And it was in that kind of time period, very long story short, that I discovered some teachers and some writers who introduced me to a more ancient way of being with God, a slower way of being with God, a deeper way of being with God, through which practices are just means to an end. But these practices that you're about to enjoy for the next year really do slow you down and get you hopefully away from your phone and the chronic distraction of what T.S. Eliot called this Twittering world. He said that before Twitter, by the way, believe it or not. <laughs> And um, so I think it was through this time process that I was so hurried, I was so distracted, I was so anxious, and I was not maturing into a greater level of spiritual maturity. If anything, I was just becoming more irritable and burned out and exhausted year over year. It was in this time period that I began to discover um, there's so much more below the surface in the Christian way. So give us a little bit, um, as you hit that kind of realization of mm -hmm. the limitation of what the model mm -hmm. was producing, as you and I know, Dallas was fond of saying, your system is perfectly designed, designed to, to give you the results you were getting. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what, how did you change your system? How did you change your life? Give us a little taste of that before tonight on... How did you change your life in such a way where that became different for you? Well, I mean, there, there's no linear journey for that. It takes many, I mean, I've been on this journey for about 15 years now of kind of changing the way I follow Jesus. And I think the general principle is start small, go with other people, and don't stop, you know. But I think for most people, and again, I don't know your community, so I'm guessing here based on driving around and getting coffee this morning and chatting to your pastor over dinner last night, but I think for most people in careerist kind of cultures, middle class and up kind of cultures, where the primary kind of challenges you're facing are hurry, chronic busyness, overwork, overcommitment, overactivity, for most of us, the journey begins with subtraction, not with addition. Yeah. So the worst thing that could possibly happen to you over the next year is to try to cram however many practices were on that list into your already over busy, exhausted, stressed out to the max life. And then Jesus just becomes another to-do list of religious activities. That's the worst possible thing you could do. You have to begin by like taking away, by stripping, by slowing down, by beginning to say no to the things that fill our life and our mind and our heart. It's not just our schedule that's the problem. You know, Ortberg has that beautiful line, hurry is not just the sign of a disordered schedule, it's the sign of a disordered heart. Yeah. And if you begin to like pull on the strings of what, why is it that we are so busy, so distracted, so chronically consumeristic, What's underneath there? And if you begin to follow that down, which most people will never do, you begin to discover some, some terrifying things that if you hold them up to the light, you begin to get free of. Yeah. But you have to go to the root of the problem. So I think for most people, the journey begins with a couple of things. One, it begins with slowing down, cutting out, saying no, simplifying their life, pursuing simplicity, not complexity. Two, it begins with adopting a way of being with God 
that is more, and this language may scare you off, but it's language from the New Testament, and I'm a guest, so who cares? Um, (laughs) A way of being with God that is more contemplative, Mm -hmm. that that is less about words or even thoughts and more about being, that feels less like work and feels more like rest, that is less noisy and more silent, that is less activity-based and more kind of stillness base. And they're both and, it's both ends. I think it really begins with adopting a deep life of prayer. And then the third component is, I think it really involves deep relationships with other people. So hence your overflow. He's, you know, you have a very good pastor. Yes, and, you do. And your team <laughs> is smart enough to intuit that if all you do is try to add these disciplines into your life through, radical, through the grid of radical individualism, they will, they will help you but they will have a very a mitigated effect. This is a journey that is designed to go, the spiritual journey is designed to go on together. And by together, that does not mean this room. Um, this is a beautiful room to be a part of, but together means a couple of other people where you can go below the line with a couple of other people that you love and that you trust and can know you. That's so good. I'm so excited tonight for the conversation that we're gonna have. Can we thank John Mark for being here this weekend? Thank you. And will you rise to your feet so that I might give you the benediction? So let your love be genuine, hate what is evil, and now hold fast to what is good. To love one another with a mutual affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Not to lag in zeal, but be ardent in spirit to serve the Lord, to rejoice in hope, to be patient in suffering, to persevere in prayer. To contribute to the needs of the saints and extend hospitality to strangers. Bless even those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. To rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. To never be haughty and never claim to be wiser than you really are. And if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. From the God we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whom we live and move and have our being from this moment on and forevermore. And may it be so.